Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Why Bother, the television program and podcast uh, that didn't need to be made by a host that didn't want to make it. I'm John Sabluski, and I am happy to be here with you today on our first episode of Why Bother. Now, today I am uh, joined by a very fascinating individual. He's a good friend of mine and a former professor I had at Buffalo State College when I was in film school, uh, Lou Rera. And he has just written a brand new book, a compilation of short stories called Awake, Tales of Terror. And he has graciously offered to come and speak with us today for a little while. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to my good friend, Lou Rera. Hi, Lou. How are you doing today? Hey, John. How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing the best I can with what I have. <laughs> Thanks, John. And before we begin, I just want to say to everyone, I hope you're all safe from COVID. If anyone you know has it, they got out of it and continue to stay that way. Yes. Yeah. This is definitely a crazy time we're living in. And and why not uh, use it to uh, better ourselves and to find ways to entertain ourselves Uh while we're here. So Lou, let's, let's talk a little bit about you as, uh, as an individual first, maybe a, a little history, uh, why you're here, who you are, and uh, why writing is such a big part of your life. Well, um, I, I have to say that, you know, because of our relationship that came about through my, my stint at Buffalo State for 20 years. In fact, I just retired from there December 31st into a year that is now canceled, but, um, you know, <laughs> great, a great time to start. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, uh, but you know, writing for me has always been part of what I do. And, um, it actually goes back decades because my first foray into writing was actually with music and not so much just the music itself, but, um, lyrics of music. So in some ways, those were good exercises for uh, flash fiction. So how can you condense uh, a piece of music lyrically into three minutes, maybe four minutes? And I did that back, you know, with uh, a writing partner, Bill Tirico, and we spent years doing that. We recorded an album, a couple uh, efforts down out in LA. And so we, we got pretty good at doing that stuff. But from a genesis perspective, you know, when somebody says, well, how do you write? Where do you write? How, how did it all come about? Mm -hmm. And I'd have to say mine is from an unusual uh, standpoint, which was my music. Definitely. Now, music, uh, you know, you I, I know personally that you have uh, a really cool past uh, with your music and, and that that was able to give you opportunities. Uh, but do, do you find that when you write a song, um, or when you write a piece of, uh, you know, fiction, that there are similarities between the two, or are they two completely different thought processes? Uh, well, when you're those? Here's the thing. I mean, we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but when you talk about long form fiction, you know, the <laughs> novel, you've got a lot of, lot of time and space to sort of expand an idea. A piece of music like a, a song or in this case, it would be flash fiction, really abbreviated uh, short stories, uh, maybe a thousand words or less. Uh, the challenge is how do you say something with uh, an economy of words that gives you the best end result and the most entertaining story that you can try and construct? 
Um, so it's, it's, it's almost like how much do you leave out? Mm -hmm. What do you put in that is so uh, important to driving home the idea that you're trying to, to put forth? Uh, so I guess flash fiction for me was a, di a direct offshoot of music because of the brevity of it all. Very cool, very cool, and and you know writing is is definitely an, an a, a thing that allows the person or yourself or whoever's doing it really to express what they're feeling, and sometimes you know you you may be surprised what you come up with, I'm sure, <laughs> but uh, it's always part of the process. Yeah, I mean, you know, people ask me like, why don't you ever write anything that ends well, you know, or. <laughs> That's a, an uplifting story. And I tried writing a story about my dog once, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I never finished the story, but I, I got a couple of pages done about how my dog, what it meant to me and the relationship I had with my dog. And then my dog died. So <laughs> so the story was all, always going to go to a bad end. Anyway. So um, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's not so much what you're writing about. It's how you sort of, say in a way that you hope something grand. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's right along the lines of like Russian literature, uh, where there is no happy ending and everybody's just gonna meet their demise. And uh that why bother? Why bother trying? Yeah, my favorite, my favorite Russian piece is actually crime and punishment. You know, it's yes. <laughs> a masterful work about guilt and paranoia. So um and that I don't know how many pages. I think it comes in around 900 pages. Uh, and I think Stephen King beat that a couple of times. <laughs> 900 pages is definitely that light reading that you look forward to right before bed. Right, right, <laughs> right. Right. All right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your book. So um, in the time that I've known you, and I was doing the math uh, yesterday, actually. So I met you, Lou, in 2009. Uh, when I became a student in the television film arts program at Buffalo State, uh, and it is now 2020. So for those of you at home that are doing the math, 11 years. Wow. <laughs> Lou, some people don't live to be 11. So. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a sad truth. Yes, I guess. So, so we, we've definitely uh, duked it out. But um, what's really, really cool is, so this is Lou's new book, Awake, which we're talking about today. But a couple years ago, uh, Lou wrote a long form novel uh, called Sign. And uh, this is also available on uh, wherever books are sold. And uh, they're very different in their approach. Um, this, this story, Sign, which I know a little bit more about because I was asked to help do like some screenplay adaptations of it when you were trying to uh, pitch it out to um, get maybe a movie adaptation made or what so have you. Um, very very in-depth, has a nice burn to it, a nice build. Uh, whereas the short story collection, you don't have as much time to really get those stories cooking. So within the two of these, which one do you as the writer prefer to write? Would you like to do more long-form or do you like the short-form uh, methods? Well, I, I, you know, some people can crank this stuff out really fast. And for me, it's a, it has to be dragged out of me. So when I wrote Sign, it took me years to, to finish that book for lots of different reasons. Um, and I sort of equate it to uh, when I was in art school in college and I would take a drawing class with this professor I really thought was amazing. His name was Robert Baumler. 
And um, uh, he assigned an assignment for us that we had to draw an object and we had to spend 50 hours on that one object using pencil. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, I'll draw this on a weekend. He'll never know that I spent 50 hours on it or not. And, you know, he said to us, I will know if you spent a substantial amount of time on that drawing. So my point is that with the long form, a novel, you have to have a sustained effort. So in the drawing, when you're doing the drawing and you start in the upper left and you're working your way down the drawing, you, you have to maintain the same level of concentration throughout the whole drawing. In, in writing, it's the same thing. You know, you are writing a long story that's 70 or 80,000 words long, and which is a traditional length of, uh, of, a, of a horror novel or supernatural crime is what I, what I work in. Mm-hmm. And um, so to keep 70 or 80,000 words at a sustained level where everything has the same quality is really, really difficult to do. At least it was for me. Um, so I found as I wrote the novel, I was learning about writing the novel as I did it. I read a lot and I was looking at lots of different structural things, uh, trying not to deviate too far into a backstory, mm-hmm. trying not to lose the reader at any given point, but ramp up the tension from chapter to chapter to chapter. So it was a really interesting exercise, but it literally did take me years to do. Uh, whereas uh, I think the biggest selling author in, on the planet right now is James Patterson, but his, his whole process is different. He, he runs writing like a factory, you know, where mm-hmm. he has subwriters that he works with that are subcontracted and so on and so forth. I'll skip the whole thing, except to say that, you know, he can crank out seven to 10 books a year under that process. So to finish answering your question, going back to short stories, mm-hmm. I kind of prefer short stories because they're like little bites. You can you can write an idea in maybe fifteen hundred to two thousand words, or up to six or seven thousand words. Sometimes a little bit longer, uh, and you can find the conclusion faster, and you can move along. And the other idea between uh, the long form and short stories is that um, in a short story you can finish one then go on to a completely different topic, a different, you know, objective with this particular short story and uh, experiment with that. So in this Mm -hmm. book that I just did, there's a lot of different flavors in the book from story to story. And, you know, when people read it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Sometimes you're, you're reading along and all of a sudden you realize that you're reading a story about a guy writing a story. So um, it's it's like that. So to answer your question after a long-winded explanation, I I like the long form. Mm-hmm. The short form story, short stories are much more approachable for me. Sure. Now, would you say that it would be safe to assume that, uh, at least for me, when I write something or I work on a piece of art, because we, we have a similar background. I mean, you used to be an, uh, an art teacher. I'm an art teacher now. Um, we we both write. Uh, I write screenplays. You write fic- you know, novels. Do you find that uh, sometimes you'll be like, you know, I really want to write this story, but I just don't want to commit 
all this time to making it this long. Maybe I could condense it and do it as a short as opposed to a long story. Or do you say, you know what, maybe I really need to put the time and effort into dedicating it to make that commitment to create the longer form because I think that that would work better for what I'm trying to do. Well, that's an interesting thing because if you write a short story and you submit it to an anthology, which I've done a number of, and, um, you know, it's instant, you know, you finish it, you send it out, you wait the four to six months for the approval or rejection, and then, you know, you're finished. But in this case, writing a collection of short stories, um, and I have to say, by the way, uh, a friend of mine who was an editor with me a few years ago, was I was working with him on some of these stories, and he his name is Michael Potter, and he said to me, you know, you've got a lot of stories here. You should probably think about putting these into a collection, which I hadn't thought of. So I guess when you you, you start to focus on that, um, a collection of short stories can take you years as well mm-hmm. because, you know, there's the development, the developmental process rather, then there's the editing process and all the things that go with that, you know, the filtering out, like this story stays, this story goes, and so on. So again, going back to me, I am not one of the writers that blasts it out. You know, (laughs) it takes me time. So the, the work that we're talking about today, Awake Tales of Terror, it took years. It wasn't an over thing. And the stories, if you read the first version of some of these short stories, they are light years different than the original, uh, uh, the, the original version. And in a minute, I'll explain why. Sure. That's that's fantastic. And I really like uh, hearing that perspective on it because, you know, you have uh, many different creative approaches here. Uh, before we move on, I just want to read uh, some of these comments. Um we have one here from Dana Green asking if the book is available for pickup anywhere in Western New York. Well, uh, it isn't yet because there is no bookstores are open that I know of in Western New York. Um, once they do open, it will be available in bookstores. Um, unlike, uh, unlike a lot of print on demand projects, this one will print returnable books. Returnable means that if the bookstore doesn't sell them, uh, they have the option to send them back to the publisher and so on. So Mm -hmm. it will be available in stores, but I'm not really pushing for that right now because of what's going on out there. Sure. Uh, The online component, whether it's ebook or print, is really the only way that um, we can sell books online right now. Uh, And this this is industry-wide. This isn't Mm -hmm. just me. It's everyone. Yeah. And if you're interested in purchasing a copy, which I know you all are, we have a link in the description and you can go right to Amazon. You have two options there. You have a hard cover or I'm sorry, a hard copy, which is a soft paperback cover like this one here. And uh, I believe the e-publication is also available uh, for the Kindle and uh, you can get it on any platform. It's it's very yeah, and I want to clear, be, be clear that it's not just an Amazon product. I, I really wanted to make sure that it was available for, for all booksellers, which includes the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, any English speaking uh, country. So, um, and Powell's books out in the West Coast and so on and so forth. So uh, it was really important to me that it wasn't just a hostage to the Amazon platform. Believe me, I'm 
very uh, grateful to Amazon. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 there are other platforms that offer other deals for other people. For instance, Apple's Books. Those are that's a popular venue, and uh, you need to buy it through Apple. So sure, it is sure. available through all those other venues. Fantastic. And I know that after today's broadcast and in syndication, Lou, you're going to be, they're going to be selling out. There are hundreds of thousands of copies gone. Okay, I'm glad you said that. Because, yeah. <laughs> um, a while ago, I, I looked up the information for the data of how many new books come out a week. And I just checked it today. And depending on what, uh, you know, uh, company you look at to, for this information, every week there's between 20 thousand and thirty four thousand books that come out a week somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 million to 2 million per year so it is extremely difficult to cut through the 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 clutter of all the books out there and there are lots of different devices but it comes down to the old adage in um in advertising out of sight out of mind right sure nobody's going to know about it so um, you know, if there's time today, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that other side of it, you know, the promotional end of it. I mean, without that end of, of, of book promotions and mm-hmm. book marketing, your book is going to go nowhere. Sure. Now, you, you actually bring me to my next question. While we're here, we might as well, uh, you know, touch on it. So when I was young, I was under the preconceived notion, which I believe probably most of the world is, is that uh, you write the great American novel or the great American short story collection, and you find a publisher, and they're excited about their book, and you get this huge check for $45 million, and now it's all done. And it's just out there, and people are just going to run to the shelves to buy it. Is that how it works? No, it doesn't work like that for anyone anymore. Um, if you're a big ticket item uh, author, then you do, you know, the Margaret Atwoods and the Stephen Kings and all those people, you know, they can write their own deal. But for the rest of us who, you know, are just, you know, putting out books occasionally, or you might even have a pretty decent following, there's a lot of legwork involved in the promotional side of the book. And, mm-hmm. When I did sign, it was through a publisher in the UK, and they were right up front with me. They said, um, you're not going to get any promotional money from us. You have to do it all. We'll give you some guidance on what you have to do, but it's your responsibility. And um, so whether it's through the web and social media, which is only a component of it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, different conferences and uh, in my case, uh, I did a lot of Comic Cons up in Canada and the Northeast uh, that had a horror section within the Comic Con and just to get out there with other writers. Um, for my genre, I joined the Horror Writers Association, which has a few thousand members. And that association was instrumental for me to learn about how to promote a book. In fact, one of the writers groups I belong to is in New York City, and uh, the people in that writers group, uh, it's been a wonderful experience with them because they're all seasoned writers, and they, they know what they're doing, and they're all members of the Horror Writers Association, and it's, you know, you need to network with uh, the people within the genre that you're working in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't stress that enough because you can't do it in a vacuum. 
Uh, you need the support of other people. And I'll finish this comment with one thing. Sure. In, in the Horror Writers Association, I wanted to become an active voting member. Mm -hmm. So I, I joined initially, but I had to wait for a while until uh, I sold enough books. Now, this is going to sound like a minuscule amount of money, and it is, but I had to sell $2,000 worth of books to become a voting member. But here's the caveat. That was $2,000 of my percentage of my book. That means that the publisher got 80%. I got 20%. So I had to sell enough books to net me $2,000 to become an active member, an active voting member mm -hmm. in the Horror Writers Association. So it was. It sounds like it's nothing, yeah, but yeah. It's difficult at the time to do that. That's, that's fascinating, too, because, you know, I, I think that – you 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 hear about like these these things in history where people like get into bidding wars over a book. I think the probably one of the most famous stories is that of J.K. Rowling, uh, oh, yeah. right, writing Harry Potter, and like overnight there was this huge uh, up arms like we want it, no, we want it, we want it, and it just you know just exploded under the scene and it got people to read and and you think that that may be the the way that it works, but it's interesting to see that of the obscene number of books that come out every week yeah. that, you know, it really does fall within the author to promote the work. Um, so with that being said, how does a publisher say, uh, okay, we're going to publish your work. Um, do they really have any skin in the game? Um, they do because here's the deal. They, they publish your book and whether it's EPUB or, print book mm -hmm. and they, you know, you gave them something that is intellectual property that you put the, the sweat and blood into to get it to the finished state. But then, you know, uh, they have a product. So they put the product out. And in most cases these days, unless you're a big name, it's POD or print on demand or electronically downloadable. So mm -hmm. Each one of those formats, there's not a lot of money out of their pocket except for the initial setup. Mm -hmm. You do the promotional side of it. So think of it this way. The skin of the game for them is this. You market the book and you sell, you know, two, four, five thousand copies of that book. And you're selling it for ten dollars, twelve dollars a book. And they get 80 percent of that. That's a pretty good uh, deal for them. Definitely. So, yeah. And, and, and so. I know one publisher um, that they their whole deal is to sign as many people as they can sign. And what they'll do is they'll keep cranking the books out. But think of this. If they, if they uh, put out 100, 200 books uh, a, a, a year or 1,000 books a year, they're making the nominal profits off 1,000 books a year. Mm -hmm for all that effort and they're not doing anything more than what I just described. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to, to see that. So I guess, you know, in this day and age with reading, uh, you know, I mean, what is a successful number of books to be sold today? Like, you know, you, you read like the New York times bestseller list. It's been on the bestseller list for five weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks. If it, would it be safe to say that maybe in 2020, because it's all really just print on demand when you need it, that maybe selling 6,000 books is a success? Like, where, where do we gauge that? 
Well, it's all up to your individual project. I mean, here's how I look at success. If you sell enough books to flip that those sales, sales figures back into the promotion of the book, and then you can keep the cycle moving where you keep promoting the book and promote it outside of the realm of, of people you know, of course. Mm -hmm. you know, you're know you going to hit a ceiling on that one really quick. Sure. So, you know, you go into an ad campaign, you run that campaign, you run analytics to see how much uh, and who is buying the book and when they're buying the book and what, what the demographic breakdown is. And then after that, so you can keep, cycling your money that you make from that back into the book. Now, once you keep doing that, what's the idea here? Um, put out more books. Keep it moving like that. That's why one of the most popular things to do for certain authors is to write a series. Sure. Um, John Mayberry, uh, a pretty successful um, writer from the Horror Writers Association, I think he's got like 50 books out, but he has uh, a series with – called the Joe Ledger series. And mm -hmm. you might have 10 books just dedicated to that. So if you get a following, then people, what they'll do is they'll say, oh, the next Joe Ledger book's coming out. I can't wait to read it. Um, yeah. Stephen King did that. He did that with uh, his, his, his trilogy that he just finished uh, mm -hmm. about two years ago. So you know, people are aware of the devices that you can use to keep readers engaged. Yeah, and you know Stephen King. Not only uh, is he a writer that everybody knows, but his name is such a brand. Um, and I know that uh, you are a, a great fan of Stephen King, myself included. Uh, fun fact, and I got to bring this up because this is this is a pretty exciting uh, thing in the grand scheme of things. And I just saw some footage from it in one of your promotional trailers <laughs> that you that you shared. But uh, oh, I'm going to say what was this? 2000 it had to be 2013 maybe no 2000 no was it 2000 i don't know something like I that think, i think so it was around there because we were i was just about to graduate and that was like the spring semester before graduating anyway uh television and film arts at suny buffalo state was able to acquire uh the rights to a stephen king short story uh called uh, big driver which is in the uh, collection of uh, full dark no stars i do believe that's correct and uh he, Stephen King had this thing for film students where you were able to give him one dollar and you had a year to create uh, or adapt one of his short stories for this uh, program. It was one dollar. So uh, Lou was the senior advisor on that. I don't know what I'm doing in my hair right now. This didn't work the way I hoped. Um, <laughs> he was the senior advisor on that. So I was lucky enough to work on that. And it was such an interesting experience um, being able to take a, a, a work from somebody that we so highly regarded and make it ourselves. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And that's why Stephen King uh, comes up. Now, he has probably, I'd say, close to 100 books. I, I can't, um, I don't know the number, but it's a lot. What is your favorite King story? And then I'm going to tell you mine. Okay. Um, my favorite King story actually is a book that is probably a quiet book that people don't know of very much. Uh, it's, it's called Joyland and it's a, uh, it's, it's been out a few years and um, it's a, it's a story about a guy who goes away for the summer before college or in between college semesters and works at an amusement park mm -hmm. and meets some friends there. And the whole 
gist of the book is that there's this uh, sort of rumor about a girl who was murdered in one of the amusement rides and uh, they never they never caught the killer. So I, I won't give away how the book rolls, but I really like the book more than a lot of his other more phenomenal books, just simply because of its simplicity, its directness, uh, the use of language, the use of pop culture, uh, and the believability of the story. And, um, and he writes this story, Joyland, from the perspective of a guy later on in his life relating the story back when he was a young man going through this experience. I, I thought that book was, was great. And um, he wrote that book, by the way, for Hard Case Crime. He did a couple of novels for Hard Case Crime, which is a publisher that exclusively deals with um, uh, crime novels. So in, in the, why I'm drawn to that particular book is uh, I write supernatural crime. This book I would classify as supernatural crime. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I, I okay. I'm sorry. If you let me just one thing about the thing we did with Stephen King and the dollar baby, uh, with big driver, yeah. is, uh, Frank Darabont, uh, who, who, uh, actually did, um, Shawshank redemption and, uh, the green mile. He worked on the walking dead for a while. And, um, he started out doing a dollar baby project, uh, called uh, the woman in the room from the night shift collection. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting because here's a guy who did exactly what you guys did back in college to produce um, a story of one of King's short stories. And he ends up becoming a, a pretty successful director and screenwriter in, in his own right. That's so cool. You know, I, I think about that experience and I, I, I have this really funny story. So uh, I was the script supervisor on the shoot, and I was also in charge of craft services because, you know, in, in college, you don't have the budget for a lot of, you know, extraneous <laughs> people. And uh, I remember uh, going home uh, to telling my mom, I said, oh, it's really hard. She said, well, what do you do on this? I said, well, I'm in charge of craft services and I'm a script supervisor. And she's like, what the heck is craft services? She didn't believe that that was actually, you know, a, a position so weeks later, we were watching Letterman or something, and and Joe and Joan Rivers was on, and she said, "I really have to get away from these movie ma movie making because I keep hanging out at the craft service table and I'm putting on weight." And my, <laughs> my mom turns to me and says, "I can't believe that that's actually what it's called." <laughs> yeah, I think you know because of COVID, I think that whole notion of craft services is going to go out the window once film starts to be produced again. I hope so because the budget that they put on those things is nuts. Yeah. Uh, and then it was funny too, because when uh, we were doing that, uh, your wife was helping out and she brought some food out for us. Uh, Lou's wife is a great chef uh, and very big in the community. And uh, she said to Lou, okay, uh, you need to cut this bread and you need to use this knife. And I remember Lou's face just being like, uh, what? Uh, and then I said, I got this. The day after that, I get a Facebook message from Lou's wife saying, I'm going to send you the instructions. For all the <laughs> yeah, I'm not too handy in the kitchen. Uh, but you know what? It was, it was a great fun. And then uh, we were digging around in a culvert 
and uh, oh, what <laughs> you don't get to you, you, you don't get to have that fun anywhere else. And, yeah, and we, you know, uh, one one more thing about the Dollar Baby project that mm -hmm. we did. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but we shot all the principal photography in the spring, which means with all the actors and stuff like that. Yeah, and we had second unit stuff to do, and the problem we ran into was spring turned into summer by the time we were shooting. We had to wait an entire year to, to go back to the next spring so that we could shoot the pickup shots for the exteriors with the car and all the other things like that. So that was my fault. I should have never planned a spring shot. We could have done it in the summer. We could have done it in the winter. But because we spit, picked a spring window, we had this much time to get everything done, which caused us to wait one full year to do the rest of the shots. Well, to live and learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So to add to the Stephen King thing real quick, uh, my favorite uh, Stephen King story uh, is Misery. And uh, and I, I feel that uh, COVID-19 is allowing us to all live in that. <laughs> Stuck yeah. in the house. Hopefully, hopefully nobody's cobbling our feet together, though, while we're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that. Okay, so uh, Awake, Tales of Terror is now available wherever books are sold. I'm going to put a, a a little thing here for our friends who are watching. Um, and you will be able to get it at all booksellers. Uh, it is by Lou Rera, very talented. Lou, let's talk a little bit about this cover for this book. So where did we come up, uh, where did you come up with the idea for this? Was this an effort um, between you and the publisher? Or is this a, what, what, what's that all about? Okay. Here, here's the direct honesty. Can you see this book here? Yeah. Okay, this is Joyland, my favorite. Yeah. The cover was painted by Glenn Orbick, and he does a lot of work for Hard Case Crime. He also did uh, Stephen King's The Colorado Kid. And so there's a certain retro sort of uh, pulp fiction style to this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I really loved it. And I thought, well, if I can get Glenn to do my cover, that would be awesome, right? Yeah. So I contacted, you know, him through the website, and uh, and, and I got a, a message back that just floored me uh, that Glenn had died of cancer, and um, he was a fairly young guy, and uh, so I spoke to his partner, and his partner said, "Look, you know, I'd love to have Glenn's work out there again." So I will send you some of Glenn's work and you tell me which one you think might be appropriate for um, the book that you're doing. So I did that and I found it, it, this is called um, uh, Innocence, I believe, is the name of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the painting. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I said, that's the one that's going to fit. I have a story, actually, that mirrors this particular image of this woman falling out of a window, or should I say being pushed out of a window. And uh, so it's by Glenn Orbick. I love his style. I was able to work out a licensing agreement with uh, his partner, and uh, I was able to get exactly the cover I wanted for this, for this collection. And, and I, I want to add that, you know, when you, when you think of a cover of a book, the cover is really important for first mm -hmm. Impressions. With sign, it was bold red and some clouds in the background. And with awake tales of terror, you've got a woman 
lunging or being pushed out of a window in mm -hmm. a very graphic way. So, uh, you know, outside of it matching the content of the book, it really helped, I feel, uh, on the marketing side. Definitely. Now, this uh, this is a what uh, this painting. Uh, what is the actual size parameter of it in real life? Do you know? Uh, I didn't. I got a digital copy of it. A mm -hmm. high-res, three hundred dots per inch copy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was fourteen by twenty-four or eighteen by twenty-four. I can't remember the exact mm -hmm. dimensions. As long as it was high-res and it could be converted into a digital cover, then it was fine. So sure. I never saw the actual painting. Sure. It's it's great. And I, I like that you're trying to emulate that. Actually, we have a comment here uh, that uh, uh, we have about the Droylands being great and that the cover reminded him of the Droyland cover. So there you go. You did you did what you set out to do. <laughs> yes. That, that uh, young man right there is Aaron Daniel. That's uh, hello, A.D., <laughs> he's a good guy I follow a lot yeah, of his work extremely talented he won a bunch of awards this year for the documentary he did on on, on ghosts Do people very cool ghosts? so he did a great great job on that doc very cool it's, it's so exciting there's so much talent and you know what buffalo state just keeps cranking out talent you know either it's either it's the students or it's the professors it's it's just it's great to see that that is still uh so uh you know, so vital in the community, even though that, you know, well, we, may, we yeah. might not be stepping foot back in a while. Here, you know, the, the girl, the student at the time who did the adaptation of uh, Big Driver from Stephen King's novella to uh, the script for our project, she mm -hmm. just came out with a book herself um, uh, called, uh, let's see, uh, I had to look, Baptism of Fire. I just received it myself and I'm going to read that book over the next couple of days. So, uh, that's so cool. Continued on her way. She's a great writer and I think she'll do really well. Yeah. Uh, Jessica Thomas, is that her name? Yeah. Je she goes by Jesse Thomas. now. Jesse Thomas. Yeah. So that's very cool to see that. I remember her, uh, reading her script adaptation and really enjoying it. So that's awesome. Well, uh, I, I think that this is going to be a great uh, opportunity for you. I'm excited to see the success come out of this book. Uh, I just started reading it. Uh, I got my copy last week. Uh, but you know, as a teacher during the pandemic, I've been a little, a little busy, so I'm trying to get back to the, my reading, but uh, I'm really excited. I love signs, so I cannot wait to see what you got here. Um, so this is Awake, Tales of Terror by Lou Rera, and it is available wherever books are sold. Uh, I have a link in the description of this that goes to Amazon, but you are more than welcome to purchase it uh, wherever you purchase books. And um, I, I think that we have another another exciting Piece. Lou, I got this picture here uh, from graduation, uh, 2013, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to post that. I'm younger, I'm sure. Oh <laughs> uh, well, uh, let's just say that until I get a haircut, I'm going to look even more homeless. <laughs> so uh, there, there we are. <laughs> look at that. So, is there anything else you'd like to talk about with your book? No, uh, I just want to thank everyone who have bought it. And uh, if you know people who like this type of uh, literature, I should say, or reading, uh, beach reading, uh, hanging around for a weekend reading, uh, then suggest the book to your friends and family. 
Sounds fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Lou, for joining me today on our first episode of Why Bother. Uh, we have uh, another episode coming up uh, very shortly, so I hope that you enjoy that as well. Please like and share on Facebook with your friends, and you can subscribe to us on YouTube so that you'll be able to uh, hear and watch these videos. And this will soon be available on all podcast streaming sites. Okay? Thanks for watching, John. Thanks a lot, Lou. I really appreciate it. Take good care of yourself and uh, stay healthy. You too. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Okay. Goodbye, everybody.